So we have talked about the most common types of lower extremity wounds. We've talked about arterial wounds, we've talked about venous wounds, and we've talked about neuropathic wounds. In this class, we're going to talk about atypical leg ulcers. So these are wounds that are not common, but are not rare. They're somewhere in between. So we definitely need to be aware of these when we're doing our assessment and we're putting together our management plan. When we see a wound that we are not confident in terms of what caused this wound or we think maybe it's this, maybe it's that, that's an indication for us that we need to probably do a referral so that we can clearly identify the etiologic factors and make sure the patient's getting appropriate management. So our objectives are to describe the pathology, clinical presentation, and management guidelines for the following. We're going to talk briefly about vasculitic ulcers. We're going to talk about pyoderma gangrenosum. We're going to talk about sickle cell ulcers. We're going to talk about calciphylaxis. We're going to talk about necrobiosis, lipoidica, diabeticorum. And if you can say that, spell it, and use it in a sentence, you will pass this class. And then we're going to talk about squamous cell carcinoma and basal cell carcinoma. So we're doing the video. Um, you're going to complete the learning exercises. And chapter 25 in the core curriculum will provide you with additional information if needed. Now, one thing I should tell you is when you're prepping for the certification exam, this is not an area of major emphasis. When you look at the blueprint, there's major emphasis on general principles of assessment, general principles of management, pathology, prevention, and management of pressure injuries and moisture friction type wounds, arterial wounds, venous wounds, and neuropathic wounds. These wounds are in another category labeled other, so don't spend the majority of your time on this. This content is really included because we see enough of these types of wounds that we need to be very aware that not all leg ulcers fall into arterial, venous, or neuropathic categories. We need to be able to think beyond that. So here's your general concepts. As we've just said, the majority of leg ulcers are caused by venous, neuropathic, or arterial disease. So that's your major focus. You want to get really clear about those wounds first. But there is a significant minority of wounds that are caused by other disease processes. And remember that we always have to address the etiologic factors if we're going to get the wound to heal. So here's what we need to do. We need to complete our basic assessment. We need to include wound-related history. We need to conduct a vascular assessment. We need to look at pain pattern. We need to look at ulcer location and characteristics, and we may need to conduct a sensory motor assessment. Now, most of the time when we've done that, you're gonna see, oh, all my data lines up with arterial, or 90% of my data lines up with venous, or this is clearly a neuropathic wound. But sometimes you'll have a wound that doesn't fit. It doesn't fit the profile for venous or for neuropathic or for arterial. Most of the time we need in that situation to initiate referral to vascular or to dermatology 
for assistance in determining and in addressing the etiology. So the goal of this class is mainly to make you aware of this significant minority and the wounds that fall in that category. Now, if you are working in a wound center or you're in a referral hospital, you are definitely gonna see patients who have vasculitic ulcers. As the name implies, these ulcers are caused by an inflammatory condition that attack, attacks the blood vessels. So the underlying pathology is damage to the blood vessels. Ulcers are secondary. The inflammatory process of the blood vessels can lead to necrosis of the blood vessels. The ones that are typically attacked are small and mid-sized vessels. It can be either arterial vessels or venous. Now, it's an inflammatory process. The inflammatory process is attacking the vessel walls. Why? What would cause this to happen? Typically, it's caused by some type of autoimmune disorder or an acute drug reaction. So here's what happens at the cell and tissue um, level. If you have an acute drug reaction, you're gonna get antigen antibody complexes that are deposited on the vessel wall. And attachment of those antigen antibody complexes to the vessel wall triggers an acute inflammatory response. You can also see that in some cases with autoimmune disorders. So once you get attachment of these antigen antibody complexes to the vessel wall, you get the resulting inflammation. Now you have a major problem. You have a very inflamed, very damaged, very weak area of the vessel. You can actually get vessel occlusion because there's a lot of edema going on here. You can get leakage of blood into the tissues or sometimes you get necrosis of the vessels and necrosis of the related tissues. So vasculitis, vasculitic ulcers, ranges tremendously in severity from one or two or three isolated wounds to massive tissue destruction involving much of the limb. So as we were just saying, the clinical presentation is variable. It depends on which vessels are involved, it depends on the severity of the inflammatory response, the progress we're making or not making in controlling the underlying autoimmune process or drug reaction. But in general, vasculitic ulcers are located on the lower extremity below the knee, very commonly around the malleolus, but sometimes on the anterior surface of the leg. Typically, these ulcers are full thickness, so they involve total skin loss. They're extremely painful. They have a pale or necrotic wound base. They typically are dry with minimal exudate. The edges are usually well demarcated, and typically the ulcers are relatively shallow. So these are pretty classic indicators of vasculitic ulcers. Now, initially, when you look at the description, you'd be like, hmm, full thickness, extremely painful, pale or necrotic wound base, well-defined, minimal um, exudate. That sounds like an arterial wound. 
And sometimes the initial thought process is that these wounds are arterial because there's clearly some degree of tissue necrosis and there's a lot of pain. But there are also major clues that these wounds are not due to lower extremity arterial disease. First of all, almost all of these patients have warm feet and good pulses. So that pretty much rules out ischemic disease as the primary etiology. Secondly, their pain is not relieved. It's not even affected most of the time by rest and dependency. So you're like, well, they're acutely painful, but this doesn't really match the profile for arterial disease. If you're able to get an ABI, typically the ABI is normal. Sometimes the patient cannot even tolerate application and compression of a blood pressure cuff. Here's other clues that it's not arterial. It's very common to see a petechial or a purpuric rash that either precedes the ulceration or forms concurrently. So you might see an ulcer surrounded by a petechial rash, an ulcer in an area of purpura. So that's another indication that something's probably going on with the blood vessels because you're clearly leaking blood out into the tissues. And finally, systemic symptoms are common because remember, this is typically associated with some kind of autoimmune condition. So it's very common for the patient to also complain of just not feeling good. It's common for them to have fever. They might have joint and muscle pain. The first patient I had with a vasculitic ulcer, when I walked in the room and told her who I was, she's like, stop right there. <laughs> so her bed's over there, I'm standing at the door. She's like, we need to establish ground rules. I'm like, okay. She's like, this wound hurts so bad. She's like, you can look, you cannot touch. So you can walk forward until I tell you to stop. I am not kidding. She said every one of these things and this is what happened. I walked forward, I could see the wounds. I could see that there were features that were consistent with arterial. I could see that there were features that were not. I requested permission to check her pulses. She gave me permission, she had good pulses. Once I got very close, I could see the petechial rash around the wound. And I already knew from her history that she did have an autoimmune process going on. She had lupus. So I was able to figure out that this was most likely vasculitic and not arterial. Now diagnosis. Again, clinical presentation is typically an acutely painful wound that is not consistent with lower extremity arterial disease. Most of these patients will have systemic symptoms or a clear history of an acute drug reaction. There are very commonly signs of vessel damage like the purpuric rash, the petechial rash. There are frequently lab findings on the chart that indicate an acute inflammatory response. So many of these patients have had SED rates done, ANAs done, so look for those laboratory tests on the chart. But definitive diagnosis requires biopsy, and that's usually done by dermatology, could be done by vascular. So dermatology in general, dermatology is your go-to when you're doing a referral for some kind of skin and soft tissue process when you're not sure of the diagnosis. That's what they do. They do skin.
and they know the test to order, they know when to do a biopsy, they can help you determine the etiologic factor. Okay, so let's say you went in, you did your assessment, you're smart, you did your vascular assessment as well, so you realize that even though these wounds were acutely painful, well-defined, pale wound-based mineral exudate, it's not arterial. The patient has good pulses, warm feet, a coexisting autoimmune disorder, maybe purpuric or petechial rash. You called in dermatology, they did a biopsy, it confirmed that this is a vasculitic wound. Now what? Well, to address the underlying disorder, they're almost always going to treat systemically. So if it is a drug reaction, yes, they're gonna discontinue the offending drug. More commonly, it's associated with an autoimmune process, so they're going to use systemic agents typically to treat the autoimmune disorder. If there's an acute infection, they'll treat that. If it happens to be associated with malignancy, obviously it would be the oncology team managing the malignancy. But most commonly we see systemic anti-inflammatory agents. Sometimes they'll send the patient for plasmapheresis because that helps to remove those circulating antigen antibody complexes. So it kind of stops that inflammatory process that's attacking the vessels. What are we responsible for? From our perspective, management of vasculitic ulcers comes down to making sure that the patient's getting appropriate pain management and providing moist wound healing. So dermatology or vascular is gonna take over in terms of managing etiologic factors. You're going to assure that there's systemic support for wound healing. You're gonna provide appropriate topical therapy. You're gonna to have a major focus on pain management. Let's talk about pyoderma gangrenosum. In some ways, it's related to vasculitic ulcers. Vasculitic ulcers involve an inflammatory, typically autoimmune attack on blood vessels. Pyoderma gangrenosum is an autoimmune process that involves an attack on the skin and can involve the underlying tissues. So you break it down, pyoderma gangrenosum. So it tells you you've got some kind of purulent process that involves the dermis and that can cause tissue necrosis. And that's exactly what happens. So you look at these wounds, it's very common to see um, necrotic edges, to see purple edges. These wounds extend through the dermis into the subcutaneous tissue. Purulent exudate is very common and they're acutely, acutely painful. So pyoderma gangrenosum usually associated with some other inflammatory condition, most commonly either ulcerative colitis, Crohn's disease, so some kind of inflammatory bowel disease, rheumatoid arthritis, sometimes cancer, but most commonly inflammatory bowel disease or arthritis. There are patients who come in they look like they have pyoderma. Workup indicates that yes, this probably is pyoderma. We can't find any coexisting autoimmune process, but that process may develop down the road. So sometimes pyoderma is a standalone. Sometimes it precedes development of another autoimmune condition. Clinical presentation, critically important. 
The ulcers actually form craters. They may start out as pustular lesions, but progress rapidly to crater formation. They can occur literally anywhere on the body. So even though we're talking about these wounds in our discussion of atypical leg ulcers, they can also occur on the abdomen and we see them adjacent to stomas. They can occur on the scalp. They can occur on the face. They can occur anywhere. So they're not limited to the lower extremities, although that is a very common sight. For which borders we've talked about, the pain severity is actually almost one of the diagnostic criteria. If you think someone has pyoderma, but the lesions are not painful and they have intact sensation, it's probably not pyoderma. These wounds are incredibly painful. That's the first thing the patient will tell you. They will ask nonstop, what are we gonna do about the pain? Because that's what makes these wounds absolutely intolerable to the patient. These wounds do cause dermal destruction, so tissue loss, necrosis. You will get scarring once the wound heals, and a lot of patients with pyoderma have open wounds here and scars here, here, and here. One very unfortunate thing about pyoderma is that most of these lesions exhibit pathogy. Pathogy means that minor trauma can cause a major flare. So early on, before we understood much about pyoderma gangrenosum, we would have these lesions. They would have necrotic tissue in the wound base, and many times the surgeon would debride the wound. It looked like the right thing to do, which would trigger a massive flare of the pyoderma. It would immediately get so much worse. So one thing that we've learned in managing pyoderma avoid anything that is mechanically traumatic to the wound. So remember pathogy. Recurrence is common. So they're painful, purple edges are common, purulent exudate is common, and pathogy is common. Four P's of pyoderma gangrenosum. How do you diagnose it? Well, you start out with a high index of suspicion based on clinical presentation. So clearly this wound doesn't match anything else. It's not neuropathic. It's not on the bottom of the foot or the toes. It's not a venous wound because even if it's between the ankle and the knee, even if there's some edema, it rapidly progresses to tissue loss and necrosis. You don't get that with venous disease. The pain is not improved with elevation. Typically, there's no history that would point toward venous disease. And again, when you look at arterial disease, it fails to match the criteria because most of these patients have warm feet, good pulses. So pyoderma is considered to be a diagnosis of exclusion. They come, they evaluate. So dermatology is evaluating along with you. Pretty easy to rule out arterial venous and neuropathic. We know it's one of those acutely painful wounds, which usually leads you down the path of <clears throat> pyoderma, vasculitis, calciphylaxis. So most of the time, dermatology will do a biopsy. Di the biopsy is not diagnostic. It will show acute and chronic inflammation. It can be used to rule out other pathologies. 
but you will never get a definitive diagnosis from a biopsy. How do you treat these wounds? You've got to interrupt the inflammatory process. So we treat with topical and systemic anti-inflammatory agents. It could be steroids, it could be biologics such as Remicade, it could be doxycycline because one of its off-label effects is reduced inflammation. So sometimes they use doxycycline, sometimes they use cyclosporin, sometimes they do intralesional steroids, sometimes they do topical agents, whatever works. So they might start with steroids. Do we get a positive response? Can we cross you over from steroids to a biologic? Do we have to augment treatment with another anti-inflammatory? Pain management is essential. It's hard to establish pain control, and usually we have to use some combination of around-the-clock kind of sustained release analgesics and then something for breakthrough pain and for wound care. They want you to recommend topical therapy. So you go right back to your principles of moist wound healing. So what can I do that will absorb exudate, maintain a moist wound surface, and very critically provide atraumatic removal because you have to think about pathogen. So things that we commonly use, we might use alginate dressings that absorb but become soft and wet and can easily be removed. We might use hydrofibers for the same reason. Sometimes we'll use non-adhesive bone dressings. And one type of antimicrobial non-adherent bones has been particularly helpful in anecdotal studies, and that is your hydrofera, hydrofera blue. So the combination of crystal violet and two other antiseptics is that combination of antiseptics that in the lab very effective at controlling the inflammatory response, reducing pain in pyoderma wounds. So if that's something you have on formulary, if you have pyo, um, pyoderma, if you have hydrofera, hydrofera blue ready, hydrofera blue ready transfer, plain hydrofera or RTD, then that would be a very good choice because it would absorb exudate, it would maintain a moist wound surface, it would provide atraumatic removal, and it would help to quiet the inflammatory response, hopefully reduce the pain. Okay, let's talk about sickle cell ulcers. We mentioned these briefly when we were talking about wounds caused by lower extremity arterial disease. We said that sickle cell ulcers represent another type of ischemic wounds. So go back to what you've already learned about sickle cell anemia. You know that because of genetic differences, you get abnormally shaped strands of hemoglobin. That alters the shape of the red blood cell and alters conformability of the red blood cells so that they tend to clump together and obstruct vessels. And that clumping tendency is enhanced during any kind of physiologic stress. So if there's an infection going on, if there's any kind of ischemia in the area, you're going to get more sickling, more clumping, more vessel obstruction, and so an acute ischemic event affecting the soft tissue. You end up with sickle cell ulcers. Now, 
These ulcers are very refractory to healing and they tend to be recurrent. So you might finally get an ulcer to heal, feel really good about it. Three months later, the patient's back with another wound. Very discouraging. And if it's discouraging for you, think what it feels like to the patient. But here's the other thing that happens over time. So if you have a sickle cell ulcer that's very slow to heal, if you have recurrent ulcers, over time you get changes in the normal vascular responses. So you lose the normal vasoconstrictive responses. Vessels tend to become chronically dilated, something that also happens in arterial disease. And as a result, you might get a coexisting edema that further compromises healing. So now you have acute ischemic episodes whenever the patient goes into crisis and the cells sickle and clump, you've got an acute ischemic crisis and then you might have coexisting chronic edema that further compromises tissue perfusion and oxygenation. So sometimes you're dealing with almost like a combination arterial venous wound and you might be using a combination of low-level compression as well as your moist wound healing. Now, clinical presentation is pretty consistent for sickle cell ulcers, so they're almost always located on the distal one-third of the leg. They have sharply demarcated edges, most commonly a pale wound-based scant exudate, again, exceedingly painful very, very slow to heal, very, very prone to recurrence. When you have patients with sickle cell disease and they have frequent sickle cell crisis episodes, prolonged ulcers with delayed healing, recurrent ulcers, over time the tissue becomes very fibrotic and that further interferes with the healing process. So how do you diagnose sickle cell ulcers? Well, one thing that's tremendously helpful is when you're reviewing the patient history, what do you see? You see they have sickle cell anemia or sickle cell disease. So you're like, wow, I wonder if this wound is caused by their underlying sickle cell disease. Then you go and you assess and you find that, yes, this wound is located on the distal one-third on the anterior aspect commonly. It's acutely painful. It has a pale ulcer bed minimal drainage. Now, their feet are typically warm with palpable pulses, but you could have some coexisting arterial disease. You frequently have coexisting edema that requires some degree of compression. How are you gonna manage these wounds? Usually, once you know that this patient has sickle cell disease and you see the clinical presentation, you can make a presumptive assessment that this is indeed a sickle cell ulcer. For patients with sickle cell disease, hydration is particularly critical because when they become dehydrated, sickling is accelerated, so you get rapid onset of sickling, vessel obstruction, acute tissue ischemia, further ulcer formation. So keeping people well hydrated so that sickling is reduced and so that patency of blood vessels is hopefully maintained. Prompt treatment of any infection. Nutritional support to hopefully promote wound healing. 
Hydroxyurea can be used as treatment for sickle cell disease to reduce sickling. And sometimes blood transfusions because then you can replace the abnormal red blood cells with normal red blood cells that will provide oxygen to the wound bed. So blood transfusions can actually be an important part of management for the patient with sickle cell disease and sickle cell ulcers. Pain management. So you see all of these wounds acutely painful. Pyoderma, vasculitis, sickle cell wounds, all very, very painful. So pain management becomes a high priority in wound management. Remember that the pathway to healing and the principles of topical therapy are basically the same no matter what caused the wound. So the medical team is focused on managing the underlying crisis, the underlying sickle cell disease. You're focused on managing the wound itself. You should jointly focus on pain management. So we're involved in selecting therapy that will maintain a moist wound bed. Usually the wound bed is relatively dry. So we might be using gels that will hydrate the wound bed. They will provide atraumatic removal. We might be doing light compression if the patient has coexisting edema that's compromising the repair process. What about malignant lesions? We know that basal cell carcinoma, squamous cell carcinoma is very common skin cancers. So if we talk about basal cell carcinoma, it's pretty obvious that we're talking about cancers that affect the basal cell layer of the epidermis, that actively reproducing layer of the epidermis. Now, basal cell carcinomas can be, um, they can just develop as a primary cancer, or sometimes they develop as a complication of a non-healing chronic wound. When they develop as a complication of a non-healing chronic wound, they're referred to as a Marjolin's ulcer. So you'll see that referred to in the core curriculum. Clinical presentation is somewhat variable. Some of them present as hypergranulation tissue that does not respond to cauterization. So we have to keep that in the back of our minds that if we treat hypergranulation tissue or what we think is hypergranulation tissue with silver nitrate and it doesn't go away, maybe it's not hypergranulation tissue, maybe it's a basal cell carcinoma. Can also present as a red-pink nodule, you see that. You can have ulcerative lesions with rolled borders like you see in the center. And it can be solitary or multiple lesions. So I remember reading an article written by a very well-known team. It was a vascular team and they had a major focus on lower extremity wounds and very good track record and accurate diagnosis and management of lower extremity wounds. And they wrote an article in one of the wound journals where they reported on three cases where they were managing what they thought was a venous ulcer with hypergranulation tissue. And in each case, the wound failed to respond to silver nitrate cauterization they did a biopsy and it turned out to be basal cell carcinoma. And they published the article because they said, as a group, we have so much experience in wound care, but every one of us looked at these wounds and thought we knew what we were seeing. 
we published this to raise everyone's awareness of the potential for a chronic wound to deteriorate into a malignancy and the critical importance of doing a biopsy if what's happening doesn't make sense. So remember that. Biopsy will be diagnostic. Treatment will involve treatment of the underlying cancer, so it's not about wound care at all. It's typically about radiation or surgery. What about squamous cell carcinoma? Well, that is a malignancy involving the keratinocytes, usually associated with prolonged sun exposure. So you'll see this in many, many patients. A lot of your elderly patients are going to have squamous cell carcinomas because of prolonged sun exposure. Just like basal cell carcinomas, squamous cell carcinomas can present in a variety of ways. So you might have an indurated papule. Well, that's pretty atypical in and of itself. It might be a plaque, it might be a nodule. You might have crusted areas, or you might have a shallow lesion that has raised and indurated borders. Here's what we always say. If you see something, and you're just not sure what it is, but it doesn't look normal and it doesn't look right, it's never ever wrong to get a consult, to do a referral, to say, I'm gonna send you to dermatology. They might tell you it's nothing, that's great. I just don't want us to miss anything. So if in doubt, send to dermatology for a biopsy. And once again, treatment is not about moist wound healing. It's all about surgery and radiation therapy. Calciphylaxis, another acutely painful lower extremity wound. So the pathology of calciphylaxis is that you have abnormal deposits of calcium in the arterial, so the small arteries and the soft tissues. It's also known as calcific small vessel ischemic disease because when you start depositing calcium in the arterioles, you get pretty rapid occlusion of the arterioles and acute necrosis of the tissue. Calcium deposits in the soft tissues typically start out, they just look like discolored areas, like plaques, kind of maroon, brown, black plaques. And then they progress to eschar formation and eventually to an open wound. What causes it? Well, obviously, abnormal calcium metabolism is a contributing factor. You're not supposed to dump calcium into the soft tissue, into the vessel walls. It's most commonly seen in patients with end-stage renal disease, most of whom are on dialysis. Most of us, if you say calciphylaxis, we think end-stage renal disease. However, in fact, sometimes calciphylaxis occurs with other metabolic abnormalities. So it's not always in stage renal disease. What kicks it off? Why do you suddenly start depositing calcium in the soft tissues in the vessel walls? And that's not clear. There are different theories about the pathology of calciphylaxis. One is that there's some hypercoagulability involved, and the other is that there's some kind of sensitivity reaction involved, therefore calciphylaxis 
and that that sensitivity reaction triggers calcium deposits in the soft tissues and in the vessel wall. We do know that if you look at labs, that calciphylaxis is typically associated with elevated calcium levels, so hypercalcemia, hyperphosphatemia, and sometimes hyperparathyroidism. And those are classic presentations for calciphylaxis. So here's the clinical presentation, just like you see on the right. You had these painful mottled lesions that progressed to necrotic, um, wounds and ulcerations. And usually as they progress to a necrotic wound, the eschar is very adherent to the underlying wound bed and they are not very amenable to any kind of instrumental debridement. They, these lesions most commonly affect the fatty tissue area. So where do we see them? We see them on the thighs, we see them on the buttocks, we see them on the abdomen, sometimes we see them on the breast, sometimes we see them on the legs. Once again, pain is a prominent presenting finding, acute pain. I don't care what you do about the wounds, just do something about the pain. I've had so many patients tell me that. So pain is usually their predominant concern Notice the mortality rate. Calciphylaxis is a very serious condition associated with very high mortality rate, 50 to 80%, usually due either to sepsis or to vascular damage to critical organs. We know that some patients are higher risk than others, so we don't always understand why. So we know that women have a much greater likelihood of developing these wounds than men. We know that obese patients have a much higher incidence. And remember that calcium deposits typically target the fatty tissue areas, so it, that may be one reason. Definitely diabetes, definitely renal failure, and especially if the patient's on the suboptimal dialysis protocol that allows hypercalcemia and hyperphosphatemia to develop. So history and physical, again, clinical presentation is a major clue, especially if the patient is known to be in stage renal disease and is on dialysis. But also there are some unique features of calciphylaxis. None of these other wounds cause calcium deposits in the soft tissues. They don't start out with mottled wounds all over the body. Also, when you do labs, you're going to have high levels of calcium, high levels of phosphorus. You might have high levels of parathormone, the parathyroid hormone, which controls calcium and phosphorus levels. If you do a bone scan, it's very instructive because all of a sudden it's lighting up all over the place because you have calcium in the soft tissues. Treatment, unfortunately, is not well-defined and frequently not that effective. So you're, first of all, you're going to do everything you can to normalize calcium and phosphorus levels. So you do that through diet. You can do that through dialysis. You can do that through calcium-binding meds, that kind of thing. Sodium thiosulfate infusions are sometimes used because it can mobilize calcium, help move it out of the soft tissues, and it can block further deposits. 
so you might see thiosulfate infusions. Definitely pain management. From a topical therapy perspective, you're following the patient along. What are the overall goals of care? Is aggressive therapy being pursued? Do we have a healing goal? Are we into comfort or maintenance? So many times we'll use kind of a wait and watch approach initially. So we, if initially the patient presents with these dry necrotic wounds and they're doing workup, you might just leave the wounds and focus on pain management and monitor for signs of infection. And then once calcium and phosphorus levels have been normalized, decisions have been made as to how aggressive we're gonna be, whether or not parathyroid resection is being considered if indicated, then you can move ahead. Typically, we do not do instrumental debridement because these wounds are just too painful. So if we're pursuing debridement, we typically use autolytic or chemical debridement occasionally enzymatic. Once we establish a clean wound bed, then you can consider negative pressure wound therapy or grafting or just moist wound healing. But a lot of how aggressive you are depends on the overall goals of care and whether this condition is thought to be reversible for this patient. There's that funny one, necrobiosis lipoidica diabeticorum. And so now you see why we call it NLD. This is a rare condition. You might never see this. It's usually associated with glucose intolerance and diabetes. The etiology is not really known. The pathology is not really known. Here's how these wounds present. They are very well demarcated. They tend to have a waxy appearance and they're most commonly located on the anterior and lateral surfaces of the legs, frequently in areas of previous trauma. But we don't know what the relationship is between the previous trauma and development of these very strange looking wounds. Sometimes they're ulcerated in the center, sometimes there's no open component um, to the area. Color is variable. It can be red, yellow, or brown. What's consistent is kind of that waxy finish. They may be painful, but a lot of patients tell you, well, they're not really painful, but they're so ugly. So I remember being at a conference and somebody came up to me and she pulled up her slacks and she's like, what do you think this is? I'm like, well, I'm not sure, but I think it looks like this. Are you diabetic? And she said, yes, and that's what everybody says it is. And she's like, what causes it? And I'm like, I don't know. And she's like, that's what everybody says. She's like, what should I do about it? And I'm like, we're not really sure, maybe steroids. And she's like, that's what everybody says. You're no more help than anybody else. That's the state of our understanding of NLD. So we don't know exactly what causes it. We do know how it presents. We know that Systemic or intralesional steroids may be beneficial, and we know that if there's an open wound, proceed with moist wound healing. So in summary, remember when we started this whole course, we talked about the ESP plus E approach to wound care, and we said that effective wound management always began with identification and correction of etiologic factors. In most situations, 
etiologic factors are fairly clear and your management pathway is fairly clear. But sometimes that's not the case. Sometimes the etiology is not clear at all. And when that is the case, when you can say, I'm pretty sure it's not venous, I know it's not neuropathic, and it's clearly not arterial, then it means we need input from other specializes, other specialists, typically dermatology and vascular. And at least in my setting, dermatology is usually the one we go to for assistance with difficult diagnosis. Once you determine what caused the wound, then typically the vascular specialist or the dermatologist will take over management of the systemic condition, you're going to focus on moist wound healing and frequently on pain management. And that's it for this class. And the next one, we're going to talk about differential assessment. We're going to pull a lot of these things together one more time. Thanks.